Hey, Nakedly Examined Music listeners. Time was growing short in trying to get this week's episode out. I've decided to populate the feed this week with a music-related discussion carried over from my other entertainment-type podcast, Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. This was released originally this past July, so it is not the normal format. I'm not interviewing an actual musician and playing their songs. We will get back to that next release with my Steve Bartek interview, but I'm guessing you all enjoy this. If you are hearing this through the Partially Examined Life feed that adds another layer of complexity, I encourage you to subscribe directly to the Nakedly Examined Music and Pretty Much Pop feeds to make sure you get all the episodes of those if you enjoy this sort of thing. You can do that at prettymuchpop.com and nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or just look those names up on the podcast app of your choice. Thanks. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast living on long after the thrill of living is gone. Today we're talking about how we relate to the music of our childhood. Are we forever frozen in our adolescent tastes, or do we naturally shed the sounds of youth? This is Mark Linsenmeyer, still trying to transpose the solo from the car's magic to B-flat to write for my saxophonist. I'm Erica Spires, here to tell all you youngsters that uh, in just an umbop, you're gone. I'm Brian Hurt, with zero songs on my iPhone, but otherwise pretty well prepared for today's podcast. And our guest. Hi, everybody. I'm John Lamoureux from the Hustle Podcast, and nostalgia is kind of my thing, so this is the perfect conversation to have. Yes, I noticed we have some overlap in our guests on my music podcast and your music podcast. I think we're in touch with some of the same publicity people, but you seem to concentrate very heavily on things that were... They had their big hit in the 80s or something. So that's not a coincidence. That's part of your modus. Well, the original intent of the podcast was to seek out people who had a shot, whether that's one hit, one album, performed on Carson, whatever it might be. They had a moment in the sun and it didn't last very long. And how do you pay your bills for the rest of your life after that moment? What do you do when it's over? But it became easier than I thought it would be to get some good guests. And after six years, we've just sort of keep going, moving up and up and up. And I should stress, not that getting super big name guests is the point necessarily, because I like everybody's story and they all have great ones. But we've just sort of evolved into, yes, how do you make it work over long spans of time is still part of the conversation, but it's also just hearing great stories. And where did this song come from? And what happened when this album didn't work? And when that guy left the band or whatever, how do you adjust? These are the topics we kind of dwell on. Yep. So given that background, we had a little email exchange and decided on this topic that we all probably had something to say about, although we should probably start with Brian so you can give your usual disclaimer. <laughs> what? Okay, sure. So I wouldn't say that I dislike music because who dislikes music, though, to be fair, very late before uh, the start of our show, I shared a, an article from The Atlantic about this uh, phenomenon of people who supposedly don't like music. It's a phenomenon called saccagia. This is like telling people that I eat, but I don't like the taste of food. <laughs> Which has got to be a thing also. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Yeah. Musical anhedonia. It's not that I don't like music, but I never seek it out. And it really is true. I have no songs on my iPhone. And when I go on drives, I will usually not listen to any music. And when I do things, I don't listen to music. Now, when it happens to be on, I might enjoy it or I might not. I own a guitar and I kind of play it okay. And I've enjoyed going to Mark's shows. And 
there are some musicals I like, but all things being equal, it's just not what I would choose to spend my time seeking out and doing. I do have some music I listen to in my youth. I don't stand by it and defend it as being good. It's just what I listen to. I said on an earlier podcast, Angela on The Office at one point says that she just doesn't like the general spirit of music. So that's what you're up against. Listeners, <laughs> your taste in music are probably better than mine. So it's good to have that very low bar to get over. And you've done it with me. All right. So thanks for singling me out, Mark. Why don't the three of you continue? And I'll just chime in once in a while. I really wish... No, no, no. It's too good, Brian. I really wish that the listeners could see the faces that John is making as Brian... <laughs> Brian is saying the most ridiculous stuff ever. <laughs> I've just, uh, yeah, I'm, my face is grimacing and contorting. This is tough for me to hear. Let's help give John the, the Erica background. So Erica, you've had in your family music baked in from the start. It is your profession. Give us a little of that background in terms of your relation to your childhood music. Yeah, it's funny to say, like, it is my profession. And that's that. it's weird for me to say that because you never really... Well, I mean, maybe some people do, but you never really feel like you make it, right? But actually, you're right by you saying that I'm like, oh, yeah, right before this, I did give a lesson to somebody for music. And then last week, I played for a wedding for money. And, you know, like, yeah, I do. Like, I'm a, I am a professional musician, but that also makes my love of music very complicated. And I also don't seek out music as much as I should. And when I do seek it out, oftentimes it is, ooh, how can I use this for this? And I, I have a very analytical brain about music. So it's hard for me to, to just sit and just enjoy it. So my husband will often bring me new albums to listen to. He'll listen to what the kids are listening to. He, he really likes to like keep up on new stuff. And I enjoy that because it's not something I would necessarily do on my own. I would normally... if. <laughs> I would normally listen to it with a thought of, oh, one of my kids could sing that for an audition. And that becomes a little burdensome at times. But yeah, all that being said, I still, I love music. I don't know what I would, who I would be without it. And my mother and father started singing us to us when we were in the womb. And, you know, we could probably match pitch before we could really form sentences. So what you're saying is thank you for the music, the songs you're singing. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for all the, and for those who aren't regular listeners, in addition to all that, Erica also performs on Broadway. So it's not like she's just a music teacher. Come on. Let's No, I was just I was sorry. I was just thinking of like the most recent thing I did today. But it en encapsulates much of my life. Absolutely. All right, John, give us your starting point. What was your what is your background other than running this podcast? I just as a at a young age became fascinated with songs being played on the radio and enjoyed them. And this is gonna sound odd, but my dad, he died a few months ago, but he was a flight attendant for United Airlines. And so I grew up being able to fly anywhere I wanted. And you may remember back in the olden days, there would be those uh, headsets, big clunky plastic headsets with the plungers that you would plug into the armrest. And they'd have about 12 or 15 different radio stations on the plane. And I used to go on trips with him every month, you know, at least one or two. And it was always a really big deal to me. The first thing is you get on there and you pull out the in-flight magazine, and you look at the back and you see wh what songs are playing on your favorite station on the airplane. Then it's those 20 songs just over and over and over again. So that had a big impact on me too. In terms of loving music and an the anticipation of a song that you love possibly coming on the radio or only four more tracks on the airplane before you get back to it. And then the ability to buy a record or a cassette and listen to it over and over again. But I think what happened is probably like Erica in her own way, you just eventually realize that you love music like someone loves sports and they follow sports and they follow stats and they follow a team and they follow the players and their batting averages and 
ERAs and all that kind of stuff, you apply that same sort of mental exercise, mental ability to music. And it becomes every Bowie album and which one's best and which one has scary monsters on it and which one did he do with Queen. And you're just applying that same. Some people have it for money. Some people have it for science. Some people have it for gardening. I have it for music. And I'm not good at anything else in life. But this is the only thing that I'm sort of goodwill hunting about is my interest in music. It's almost like it finds you. I feel similarly to that. I guess when I was thinking about this topic, there was the stuff that your parents smuggle into you before you're conscious. (laughs) So that is like one whole psychological category of stuff that I made at age nine, a John Denver multi-cassette mix out of my dad's record albums. Erica, you should... (laughs) The epitome of cool. (laughs) I love John Denver. I have no problem with John Denver. Listen to elevator music. I like to, when I'm interviewing musicians and we're analyzing their songs, to accuse them of certainly that is something that probably got to you in your prehistory. That like, there's all these things, you know, where you watch Ricky Ricardo on TV. Like if you're a rock and roller and have no actual connection to Latin music and you slip in a little tango somewhere, it's probably because either the Beatles did something like that or because you have these prehistory things that, you know, so a lot of the goofy stuff that ultimately makes music enjoyable to us are these things that just at a very young age turned us on, like what makes the major chord so nice, you know, which is interesting that when I run into somebody whose parent was like a musicologist or something like that, who had a really messed up beginning that like my bandmate from college, Steve, like the first album he ever heard was the Beatles White Album. (laughs) Whereas this was something that I had to like grow toward and discover in high school. So yes, then there's the stuff that when you actually maybe hit, I don't know, for me, it was like maybe age 11, where you're listening to the radio, and I was taping stuff off the radio, and there's just all these cheesy Michael Jackson beat it, and that's when I got into the cars and stuff like that. But then gradually morphing into you as adolescent, and if you're like me and John, at least, you know, probably this is probably when it really kicked in, becoming the amateur scholar of the form and wanting to reach far and wide But then, yeah, I guess what I'm interested in is from those three phases, how much that actually persists in you as an adult? How much do you actually still listen to the stuff? How much would you defend it? Is some of it just a guilty pleasure? This is the questions that were driving me to come up with this topic. The older I get, I don't feel like anything should be a guilty pleasure unless it's something that's like actually gross. You know, something, something that kind of hurts other people. And you're like, oh, that feels guilty. Like that's something you should feel guilty about. But if it's just a song, if it makes you happy. Why should you ever feel guilt about enjoying yourself? Totally agree. Well, and maybe that is something that is more common for young adults that have something to prove still. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Because I grew up with a lot of what I would call guilty pleasures because I grew up with two older brothers and they had the idea of what the cool music was. And I just listened to what they listened to. And sometimes if I wanted to go out on my own and listen to something else, I would get teased for it. You know, just a good joshing or whatever. But, you know, it's funny looking back, like my brother, Sean, who is the eldest, and he's definitely like the coolest of us kids. He just didn't care. Or if he did, we couldn't tell because he listened to some stuff that was considered cool. But like in high school, he was super into Yanni and Inya. And other kids started listening to it. And they're like, this is really interesting. This is great to listen to before a track meet. He kind of, I guess, became like a bit of a tastemaker in such a weird way. So... But I, yeah, it took me until the boys, 
as I called them, until the boys left the house to kind of discover what I actually wanted to listen to because I didn't have to feel like I have to worry about what albums I was bringing home. (laughs) What I think Mark mentioned and you expanded on there, Erica, is that so much of what we did as teens was also based on being in our teen societies and that developmental stage where peer pressures were so big a part of what we chose to like or dislike. And there wasn't a name for it, but of course there was all sorts of gatekeepering going on. Back then, did you, well, you couldn't be a U2 fan if you only liked this album. You had to know like the the deep cuts and the B tracks or vice versa. If you liked the wrong kind of group, like Yanni or Enya or whatever, you sure didn't tell your friends at school about it because there was no angle in it for you to to be known as the person who liked this or that. The master of the pan flute. (laughs) (laughs) So even though you may well still like or not like things genuinely based on those tastes that formed then, the way those tastes got formed sometimes have been in fairly unhealthy ways. I mean, we are who we are and we like who we like. And as someone, as I've said already, music isn't that important a part of my life. But if a song comes on and it, you know, I'm tapping my toe along to it because I know it, I don't really give a whole lot of thought to, oh, well, you know, this is Blue Swede and Blue Swede is ridiculous. So I, I shouldn't like it. Uh, it's like, oh, you know, yeah, I kind of know this Ukachaka song and I really like Guardians of the Galaxy and it seems to work. And I got a happy little vibe from that thing, even though it's musically probably fairly bankrupt compared to the original. I think what Brian's describing comes just through maturity and through age and wisdom and not giving a crap. Because I think there's four different layers or levels of our coming to terms with the music we like. When we're young, we like the things that we hear on the radio that sound cool, that our friends might like. Especially if you grew up in the 80s when there was, you know, you'd hear U2 on the radio and then you'd hear Bobby Brown and then you'd hear Def Leppard and then you'd hear Cindy Lauper and they'd all be back to back to back to back to back. That doesn't really happen so much anymore. And then when you get into like college age, you start to reject all the things that you thought were cool when you were a kid. I have a huge CD collection, but when I was in college, I remember thinking, I don't like 80s music anymore. I'm going to sell all my 80s CDs. And if you know me, you know that's like totally contrary to all my favorite stuff because you just speak, that's when you become more cool and you're more concerned about, I don't know, maybe if you're a true music fan, unlike Brian here, you might become more academic about who influenced who and keeping it cool and stuff. And then you go through the third stage, which is like, well, if I'm honest about it, I really liked those Hollow Notes songs back then. And for a while there, I think I, w- I felt like I was made to feel guilty about that or that I shouldn't or that they're lesser than, but I still really like them. And maybe that makes me silly or weird or something. And that's where the guilty pleasure concern comes in. And then there's the fourth stage, which is just like, screw that. I like what I like. And I'm not going to feel weird for it. As Erica said beautifully, no one should ever feel silly for liking something. And if it makes you happy, that's the entire point. But it takes some stages and some maturity and some wisdom to get there. Maybe part of that fourth stage is also understanding how what you say influences the the people around you who haven't arrived there and haven't accepted what they like, and they are still looking for that approval. And I mean, I definitely notice this. I don't have children, but I have nephews and my eldest nephew is 12. So like, he's definitely that age where he's trying to introduce me to things and I'm trying to show him some things. And as I'm doing it, there's times that I just want to like tease him because 
he's funny. And then I have to remember, wait, 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 wait. If I say this to him, it's very possible that that will keep him from looking up other, you know, other musicians or other filmmakers that he might really be interested in just because I didn't show enough interest in it. It's funny because all of us have been influenced by gatekeepers. And then we get to that point where we don't give a shit, but then we have to be careful that we are not then becoming gatekeepers ourselves. Let me throw out an anecdote. So I really liked when I was very young, when, you know, 1981, when it came out, the Asia album, it was huge. Everybody liked the Asia album. And it was only later that I learned that actually sort of the culmination of this like prog rock plus the eight, like that it had some real musicianship behind it that some other stuff from, you know, that sounds very similar to, to it from that period doesn't have. And so even as a young adult, I had some respect for this, even though it was no longer cool. And I remember picking up after it had been out for several years, the 1992 Asia album Aqua, which no longer even has the original singer. It's just a shell of its former self, but it still has like enough of that, the synth feel and enough of it. I was discussing this with a musician friend of mine and he was like, you know, there's just some people that just get stuck in a certain genre of music, these certain artists. And those are the only people that would possibly like this album because this is objectively a bad (laughs) album, just a shell of its former self, whatever, however you feel about the original album. The original 1981 Asia album, 1992 Asia, was simply pretty terrible. So what do you think about that whole, I have such a nostalgia for this certain kind of music that I'm going to like things that are tangentially related to it because it has enough of that spirit. So John, I know you had like guys from the outfield on later. That was another one, the very big, by the time, you know, it's their ninth album. I don't know. What is it? What is the justification? (laughs) Okay, so I grew up in the Bay Area, and so the Oakland A's were my favorite baseball team. Now, I haven't lived in the Bay Area for a long time, and I couldn't even name more than a couple people on the team now because they don't get played very often. But my heart is still with the Oakland A's because when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, that was my team. And because of that, I'm going to root for them. You know, if they're in the World Series, I'm going to hope that they do well. And I think similarly, we stay attached to bands for lots of reasons. I mean, Aqua, first of all, you're underselling Aqua here. Asia was fine. Asia did okay. Not every album's going to be as good as the debut, but Asia did some really interesting stuff. And you love them. And so your heart is already open to whatever it is they're going to create. So you're willing to go in and listen to Aqua and at least pluck out the parts that you like. And I hope one day, Mark, you don't have to preface talking about Aqua by saying you know it's terrible. You can just proudly say, I loved Aqua. I wasn't supposed to love Aqua. I'm one of the few that loves Aqua, but I proudly love Aqua. And that's the point that we all should just, I hope we can all get to with our music. Just that that's a second level guilty pleasure that the original love for the original Asia already as uh, featured in the, the 40 year old virgin in the movie as like the thing that he's still into. And then being that into it, yes, a further stage of shame. Yeah. You know, David Bowie's my number one, and I have every David Bowie album. I don't love them all the same, but if he were still alive and putting out music, I would buy it because I'm supporting everything that David Bowie's going to do. Same with Crowded House just put out a new album. They're my favorite group, one of my favorite groups ever. I actually don't expect it to be good because their last album wasn't very good. Neil Finn's solo stuff hasn't been that great. But I'm going to listen to it and I'm going to give it my whole heart because I love them. I'm on board for whatever they do, you know? 
we're loyal. We're loyal to the things that struck us at some point. And for music, it's most often when you're like 10 to 16 years old. And John, even if that stuff isn't good, whatever that means, you are likely to appreciate it about as much as anybody is going to, because you'll understand its context. And if there are aspects of it that are good, even if they didn't entirely get pulled off successfully, the bits of it that did work, you'll be able to say, oh yeah, I see what they were trying to do, or I see what they did in part, but maybe didn't pull off completely. Now, Brian, I'm curious, as the resident naysayer, is there something that you actually, like, is there one song or a couple of songs that when you hear them, you hear it, you're like, yeah, this one. And it could be either that it makes you really happy or it just like reminds me of a movie. Maybe it's a soundtrack. It reaches deep into your loins. I find that that songs that I think of as anthems, rock anthems, often I kind of get what's going on there. And when it kind of builds to that crescendo and it's definitely driving you on towards and, you know, there's Pink Floyd ones that come to mind. There are even some Songs and musicals, you know, with the anthem and that invariably is in the middle of an Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I was when I put on Amazon Prime to get ready for this podcast and I did listen to it in an entire car ride recently. And I put on the musicals channel for a while. And it's so weird hearing the Les Mis, I guess it's the end of act one. Do, do you hear the people sing song? And it's like out of context. It's like so weird that it's just happening. But by the time it's over, it's like, yeah, the beating of distance drums is matching the beating of my heart. And then the song was over. I was like, meh. <laughs> That's good. Uh, then you get into like why an album is great, right? Rather, as opposed to a song, because yes, a, a song has a limited time where it can really affect you. But I remember meeting people specifically in, in college who were like, I really like soundtracks. I don't know if that's because that became a big thing around that time when I was in college, but people got really into soundtracks and it was almost like a gateway drug for them into classical music. They were afraid to ever get into classical, but boy, they liked, somebody was like, I really love the soundtrack for the red violin, or I really love the soundtrack to Amelie. So yeah, I think that's part of it too, is like, Brian, when you first started talking about it, I was like, well, you probably do appreciate music. You just hadn't been taught how to appreciate music. You haven't been taught all the ways in which it does affect you. So you just don't think about it. It's I don't take it personally as a musician that you you don't care. There are things I feel like I don't care about either, but. Oh, see, I dislike it despite you, Erica. <sighs> but to John's point, I really resonated this idea of there are things that I like and geek out on. And I'm just sort of at that age where maybe it's not going to be music at this point in my life. And if it's certain authors or certain you know types of movies or just whatever, like I know my areas of interest and that's where I'm going to focus my... It's not a decision so much yeah. as, well, I know I have limited time and I do with it what I want. And it, I naturally gravitate towards those things. And when I'm doing stuff where my hands are busy, but my ears are free, it's it just it doesn't ever end up being music. It's a sporting event or it's a podcast or it's an audiobook. Brian, I'm curious, do you own any CDs or records? I don't think I do, actually. I used to own tapes. I don't have a tape player in my car now. So the impulse to, ooh, I'm in the mood to hear Bohemian Rhapsody or whatever. I'm going to go pull the Queen Greatest Hits CD off the shelf and put it on in my car and go for a drive. You don't have that impulse ever. No, I wouldn't say so. That's so foreign to me, but that's so fascinating. I don't get the Im I don't have the impulse to eat a lot of guacamole. <laughs> We're all just different. Well, and I wonder if there might be something about our ages that a couple of the articles that I found, I will link folks to, 
just talking about why do older people not get into young people's music? Why do we have the generation gap in music? And psychologists have studied the things that you could probably figure out through common sense, which is when you're young, you're more emotional, you spend more leisure time, at least most people, John and Eric and I are exceptions probably in this, but don't just lie around listening to your albums in a way that you probably did as a teen. Don't necessarily play the same things over and over again. I even wonder about just the difference in how music technology is available to us now that we really were in a position where the only music you had is either what you're waiting for on the radio or what you owned. And so when I owned something, then I would just play it again and again and again. And there's just no impetus to do that now with streaming. And I just have even among what I own, I have, there's too much of it unless I'm like, I'm going to, you know, go through a particular crowded house phase right now. And I'm going to listen to all their, you know, it, it's just the reason that I would do that, in fact, is because I remember having a relaxing time in my dorm putting on Pink Floyd's Adam Hart Mother. or And so I will do that same thing now while I'm lying around to try to <laughs> have some sort of nostalgic relaxation time. Whenever people talk about they like music because it reminds them or a song because it reminds them of a happier time or something like that. And I think my childhood was fairly miserable most of the time. I mean, I wasn't abused or anything like that, but you know, I wasn't cool. Girls didn't like me. I got beat up a lot, all that kind of stuff. So what is it about my childhood that I want to listen to music that takes me back there, but yet I was unhappy? So why do I even have that feeling? And I finally realized the other day, maybe this is obvious to everyone, the nostalgia is for the fact that the music was the escape from the misery that most young teenagers probably feel. That when I was being picked on and the girl didn't like me and I'd go home and I'd play This Woman's Work by Kate Bush or something like that to really drown in my misery and my sorrow, those weren't happy times, but the music was my escape. And so the reason I lean on that music now is not to remember how unhappy I was, but to remember the power of the escape that music played in my life at the time. It took me till just now to realize. That's beautiful. I had never thought of it like that. You're nostalgic for the escape, not for the time of your life. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was usually somewhat kind of miserable and pining. I wasn't really allowed to date. So a lot of my stuff was all around like love songs that where I would imagine if something were to happen with somebody I had a a crush on who I would never say anything because I knew my parents probably wouldn't allow me to date. And it would be utterly embarrassing to be asked on a date and not be able to go. Yeah, mom and dad, if you listen, listen to what you did to my psyche. So many things coming up in this episode, man. (laughs) Hey there, let's stop and talk about Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. You can learn how to write from David Mamet, Judy Bloom, Salman Rushdie, how to cook from Gordon Ramsay and many others, skateboarding from Tony Hawk, photography from Annie Leibovitz, style from Tan France. The list goes on and on, and of course, they've got an ever-increasing roster of music classes from world-renowned artists like Reba McIntyre, Usher, Herbie Hancock, Hans Zimmer, Carlos Santana, Alicia Keys, and now brand new courses from Yo-Yo Ma and Metallica. I experienced some of their Metallica Teaches Being a Band course, which has all four members talking, yes, about songwriting and collaboration, but also about just managing egos, getting things done. If you've ever seen their documentary film Monster, you know they went through a lot of hell and therapy to learn how to actually work together and get over themselves. So they have a lot to teach. All these classes are wonderfully filmed. You can experience them as video, as audio. You can speed them up. 
You can really drill into it, use the supplementary material that is provided with every course, engage in discussions with other listeners. You can do a whole course or just skip around. Once you are signed up, you'll find so many things that you did not realize you were interested in. And of course, you can just share it with your family. They're going to all find their own things that they're excited about. Ultimately, you're going to get way more value from this than you're going to get from yet another streaming service. And it's about that same price. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. A lot of people, yes, one of the things that you brought up, Mark, is that as you get older, you don't want to listen to the young kids' music. But I think that's just so short-sighted, man, because like it's so cyclical and... One thing I do like about the current streaming services is that in a way, there are certain things that make it kind of like an old radio station where they'll just play a bunch of music and you discover things that you never would have found on your own. So like we listened to this, I think Billie Eilish station, which really Billie Eilish, but I was like, man, what is this song? It has a very Bowie feel to it. And it was Harry Styles. And I was like, what? Harry Styles? And then I was then I there was another song that came on later on, and I was like, I really like this too. It's another Harry Styles song. I guess I like Harry Styles now. Or Olivia Rodrigo, like her album, the entire is supposed to be listened to as a full album rather than as one song and a song. And the kids are like on the train of this. They're actually listening to her whole album, and it's cool. So if you don't like the music that the kids are listening to, give it another 10 years. And at that point, they'll probably have been influenced by the stuff that you grew up with. It's funny you say those two in particular, Erica, because my 14-year-old daughter is obsessed with Harry Styles and she loves Olivia. And when we're done here, the kids and I are going to go for a drive so that we can listen to the new Olivia album and some Harry Styles in the car loudly and kind of enjoy the Sunday. That's our thing. It's funny you would mention those two in particular. And I'm like you. Harry is amazing. I get it. You know, I'm so glad that she likes music I can get behind. It's great stuff. He's a talented guy. Well, and it's funny to listen to my daughter, who has just turned 18, who is a Taylor Swift fan. And then this Olivia thing comes out and she's skeptical about it, about like, I don't, I'm not sure. So she's kind of reached that point of now distinguishing, you know, among the pop stuff of like what actually has uniqueness and depth to it and what is just stylistically similar, but is somehow faking it. Like this is exactly the kind of thing that made me hit a certain age and feel like, oh, I still do like the cars and the police and the talking heads because they were doing something that was authentically post-punk and rooted in whatever, but Haircut 100 and all those other 80s things that were played back to back with them on the same, like, no, now I disavow all that stuff. And I was even never into some of, you mentioned, John, sort of the Bobby Brown and all this stuff being played in a row. Like, even at the time, even when I was at least hitting the age of 14, I kind of became a snob about, maybe it was this sociological stuff of the the Guns N' Roses kids I don't like personally, so I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna like Guns N' Roses. I had the same thing. In fact, I was gonna mention this. So I grew up Mormon in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I rejected all of the hair metal stuff because it felt like a threat to Mormondom or whatever, you know, my religious upbringing. If I like this, what does that say about me and where I'm coming from? All the kids I know at school who like this stuff have really long hair and seem to come from broken homes or lower socioeconomic places. And 
their jeans are torn and they smoke on lunch. And I don't see myself in them. I have moose in my hair and my shirt's buttoned all the way up and my pants are pegged and I got some neon on. (laughs) And so I don't see myself in the people that like Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and stuff like that. It wasn't until later, as I mentioned, when you get older and you decide you don't care as much. I read this fantastic book by Chuck Klosterman, Fargo Rock City, which is like a defense of the artistic merit of 80s hair metal. And again, like I always do, why have I been fighting this for so long? Def Leppard are incredible. They write great glam rock, pop rock songs. Why do I fight this? In a way, it's freeing because it's like, good, I don't have to be judgmental about hair metal anymore. I don't have to put toward the energy of saying I don't like it and it's baseless and it has no value. I'm wrong. It all has value. And I'm glad to be wrong because now I've opened up my life to that section of music as well. So I think we reject some things when we're kids and we're trying to find our own identities and figure out who we are because they don't fit the narrative we have of ourselves. And I thought of myself as a short-haired, gel, cure Smith's Depeche Mode kind of guy. And so Def Leppard wasn't going to fit in, but it does now. I don't have any hair to gel anymore, so it's perfect. (laughs) We're all equalized by time. (laughs) I was thinking about that in terms of when I interview some of these people and to ask you about this, John, that most of them, even if they had some definite style that they had to adhere to when they were, you know, became popular in the 80s or whatever it was, they don't have that now. And they just look like normal people. And you can kind of joke with them together about, did you have to wear parachute pants or whatever, whatever the thing was. But that's not the case with everybody. And still, you know, I mentioned the cars was like one of my just favorite, favorite things when I was 13 years old and starting my band. And I did transcribe. <laughs> The solos for my friend, the best friend of Brian and my, who played alto sax to try to play those things. But those guys, like Rick Ocasek, right until he died, still insisted on looking like Rick Ocasek, like just always having sunglasses, always wearing a suit, having the long hair, just this weird affectation that I just didn't know what to make of, that I feel like once you get beyond that initial period where you're being paid and you're on stage and you have to maintain this or that's part of your brand just be a person now i don't (laughs) how does that play into the various attitudes that you're getting in your interviews from these aging rock stars i always find that really fascinating and it's a avenue i go down sometimes in interviews i never find that the answers are quite as satisfying as i want them to be but i do wonder if you hitched your wagon for instance i'll give you an example men without hats okay they're you know pop goes the world and safety dance big hits The lead singer is named Ivan Doroshuk, I think is how you pronounce his last name. I've never interviewed him. I want to. But in other interviews that I've heard with him and pictures I see and we're Facebook friends and whatever, I get the impression that he's kind of like a gritty, grumpy, prickly kind of guy. And I always imagine that he was probably into synthesizers for about 10 minutes in the early (laughs) 80s and he came up with Safety Dance and now he's, he has to be into synthesizers for the rest of his life. But if it were up to him, he would want to go make some kind of like hard rock, heavy metal album. In fact, they tried once in the early 90s. They put out this hard rock album called Sideways. and No one liked it. No one bought it. It's not very good. And so, yeah, what's that like when you, you were into something for a minute there when the rest of the world was? New Wave was really exciting. It was a sort of, a, to me anyway, a different form of punk rock. These synthesizers, what can they do? What sounds can we make? And you wrote a couple of good songs, and then you're stuck being the synthesizer guy for the rest of your life. 
you probably don't want to do that. Maybe not if you're a real artist or other things interest you. I don't know. I ask when I get the chance, but no one ever gives me the answer that I, I want. Well, I guess to ask more widely, I guess we sort of had our artist versus song thing in a past episode, but is there anything in light of what we've been talking about here now, Erica or Brian, that you'd want to add? Do you pay any attention <laughs> to what the people that you loved in your youth are doing now? It's different through time and how quickly everything kind of changes now that I think I grew up in a time where I didn't expect people to be around for that long because there were so many one hit wonders and, you know, music videos were really big. So sometimes people were big stars because they had a good music video, but they didn't really have much substance on their albums. So I guess the, the short answer is no, but the longer answer is sometimes, yeah, I like to see what people are up to and see how they've changed. And right now people seem to want authenticity. And so it's kind of a cool time, I think, for musicians to just be like, yeah, I did this as a kid and I'm not a, like a huge Justin Timberlake fan, but I like him. But he's not somebody who seems to be like embarrassed by the fact that he was in NSYNC. He's just learned how to do something after that. Sometimes you get interested by it. I think in particular, like this new, new wave that's coming, that has come out in the past several years. I've really enjoyed a lot of that music. And I was a little too young for the first new wave, you know, round. Was there just wave first and then new wave? <laughs> what a terrible joke. Good one. Um, <laughs> surf, surf music. Yeah, no, like yeah. I enjoyed new wave until the new version of new wave came out and I'm like, oh, this makes me feel like I'm like a child again. And like, obviously it does. And like, so that then did the opposite for me. It made me want to go back and find old bands that had originally influenced the kind of music that's out there now. I've been to enough concerts of the music I would have listened to in high school, just these bands that don't go away or come back in various forms, to know that I don't feel like there's all that much new to be offered. Like when I saw the Eagles play and Paul Simon and Bob Dylan all within the last you know five years, and it's anything that is new is just like, you know, what is... I don't even know how to appreciate it. It's like, so this is like a new Paul Simon thing. Like he's still doing something different. It's like, just play Graceland and Simon and Garfunkel and don't talk to me about the the Brazilian shaman because I don't want to hear about it. Brian's that guy. Wow. <laughs> wow. He's representing the majority of fans in any given I know, audience. I know. And, and, and you know, I, I understand that like it becomes real contentious with some of these musicians. I thought that Van Morrison was, is well known for not wanting to play his old stuff and getting a lot of grief from his fans who came to hear Tupelo Honey, but that's not what he wants to do. And so what do you do is you're a, an artist, but you are also creating a product for consumers. And it's there's a lot of different things going into this often very expensive transaction of having a concert. So Bob Dylan in particular, that was a, you have to be a Bob Dylan fan, like a, like a really committed fan to enjoy his concert because it's either it's things you haven't really heard of or things that you have heard of, but like you didn't even realize it was that song until afterwards you go online to see what he played. It's like, wait, that was, was a, a brown eyed or sweet eyed lady of the lowlands or whatever that is. Like I totally didn't recognize that at all because of how it came out. That was a weird, a weird evening for the audience. To, to <laughs> That's right. Like for Christ's sake, say hello Lincoln at least once during the performance. Like there was no acknowledgement that he was in a town. I wanted two words out of him. <laughs> I had the exact same experience with Bob Dylan. I saw him and he never engaged with the audience at all. 
we were halfway through like a Rolling Stone before I realized that's what what the song was because he's kind of, it's going really fast and he's sort of like murmuring through the chorus and I, oh, wait is that oh this is like a Rolling Stone I hadn't picked up on that yet but you know you mentioned people like Van Morrison I think I think that's what a lot of those types of artists fans love about them for instance I saw Todd Rundgren in concert I've seen him a couple of times people love Todd I don't quite get it I'm not I don't dislike Todd but I'm not you know, the obsessive that some people are. The first time I saw him was probably the worst concert I've ever been to because it was all sort of uh, made up on the spot. And instead of playing a lot of songs, he would play a song like a big hit, Hello, It's Me or something, very quickly on the piano. Then he would give his whole heart and soul into singing like an old radio jingle that he grew up on in the 40s or 50s, or like, you know, a commercial or uh, the theme song to the kinds of songs that boys on Stand By Me would sing while they're looking for the dead body, that kind of stuff. That's what the whole night almost with Todd Rundgren was. I was so frustrated. I'm just like, this is not what I came here for. But his fans loved it. I was the youngest guy in the room by far. And everyone else was just lapping this up because they probably loved Todd for decades. And this is a unique experience to them. Yes. You know, I don't want to hear Blinded by the Light or whatever. Again, I've heard every time I see you, you play the hits. I'd rather have you sing Ovaltine commercials from the 50s. That's what I want. And so they were so happy and I hated it. Well, that's so funny that he's doing the exact thing that we're pondering in this discussion of what actually catches your mind, what is going to engage you, even despite your best efforts. And I find even now, commercial jingles from my childhood have space that cannot be relet. <laughs> Too bad. So that is an essential part of, you know, what makes this so insidious of the music of our childhood getting into us. I find too, I don't know if you guys are like this, that really the, especially since starting the podcast, I just don't have time to stay up on new music anymore because I'm always researching somebody, like I'm interviewing Paula Cole this coming week and Paula Cole's great, but I I don't know every Paula Cole album by heart. And I feel like I owe it to her that I should. So I have to listen to every Paula Cole album. I'm happy to do that, but I can't go listen to the new Billie Eilish because I got to study Paula Cole for a few days. You See, know? that's what I was talking about in the beginning. That's, it's tough, right? It's tough to love something when it starts to become your work. Yes. And I find too, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but really the only bands that I'm interested in new music from are the bands that I grew up on. Trash Can Sinatra's or Hall & Oates or Tears for Fears or Crowded House or whatever puts out a new album and that's what I want to hear. That bumps up to the top of my want to hear list. The new Discovery playlist on Spotify, as much as I respect that they do that, I don't have time for that. I barely have time to catch up on the new Simple Minds album that I've been looking forward to, let alone you know some band I don't even know. I don't have any more brain or heart space to devote to getting falling in love with someone new. This is why the government will come eventually and burn all the old records and things so that new artists can have headspace to fill. What's this grumpy, grumpy guy? (laughs) Okay, so one of my songs, Mark, you had asked to put together a list of, of, of songs that I didn't like go through my albums and like list them. I, you know, just as a starting point, I was like, what are the songs from this year? And then like, if something, if that sparked something in me, I, then I would write it down. And one of the songs that came up as a childhood song that I remember very well. And I loved was King of Wishful Thinking. And then I was just looking through your list, John, of people you've interviewed and Go West is on there. 
I didn't even realize until mm-hmm. I looked it up. I've had the was... lead singer, the songwriter, and the producer all on the show. I love that song too. <laughs> it's such a good song, right? And the, yes. it just makes it makes you so happy. The video makes zero sense from what I can understand, but it is just quintessential 80s, man. Or is it 90s? Is it early 90s? Early 90s. 90, 91, I think, but still. Yeah. Not far off. Yeah. Boy. I suggest you guys check out that video because you'll just be taken back to a different time and place. What's even better is the Jimmy Fallon, Paul Rudd parody of that video that's also out there. Paul Rudd came on The Tonight Show. They did a scene-by-scene perfect parody of that video, and it's hilarious. Oh, great. That is a song that still goes through my head now that I really enjoyed at the time, but I have never once... I will now, actually, but have never once gone back to it because I realized pretty shortly after it was popular that Mayor of Simpleton, XTC, XTC became the thing that I almost listened to to the exclusion of everything else for a couple years in college versus this thing that was stylistically similar to it, but that I decided was emotionally empty in some way. It was a fake. (laughs) So that's a great example of something that I I don't consider as shameful now. I still remember it fondly now, but like it definitely played a role in this dynamic. Mark, the beauty of all of this is that you can love them both. (laughs) I'm a huge XTC fan and a huge Go West fan, and I love both those songs. And mentioning that uh, Jimmy Fallon bit, that is how actually I get exposed to a lot of Music is because, you know, I'm part of pop culture. I'm on a pop culture podcast and it's you come across it. I admit I was exposed to the song Driver's License through the SNL sketch about the guys in the bar listening to the song Driver's License. And I've since listened to a bit of Olivia Rodrigo, but I didn't know who or what she was. And I get it. I mean, I don't think I have a complete inability to appreciate it. I just don't seek it out. So I don't know how who among us have seen the movie Cruella. I think it may be coming up and an upcoming discussion, but all the throwback music done in a Martin Scorsese way to the point to being intolerable, to go to instantly recognizable music all the time to punch up your a movie or a TV show. It's like, I see why people do it. Like it has this huge nostalgic, emotional impact that takes absolutely no work to do because, oh, I don't have to earn it. I just have to play it. And people will certainly have a feeling just by listening to it. So Like, why bother doing something difficult when I can do something easy and just play cheap, easily accessed? I don't know if you want to call it nostalgia exactly, but I think certain songs evoke pretty base feelings very quickly and easily. But I need to point out in that film, they play the Stooges' I Want to Be Your Dog. In other words, the cast members are actually playing it. They're playing a cover, their own cover version of it in a key point as if it's this is their original creation. And I think that's like one of the most popular Iggy and the Stooges songs ever. But still, it was never a radio hit, at least maybe before I was conscious it was. But like, it is a key underground music staple as opposed to being something that is nostalgized again and again. As far as I'm aware, it never like rose to that level. So that was an interesting choice to get something that certainly has nostalgia for a lot of people, but is for a select group of snobs, it has nostalgia value. <laughs> like us it's funny everything brian's saying that are deterrents for that movie i now want to see the movie because of everything he just said <laughs> if you're telling me that crew i'm gonna go see cruella and they're gonna sprinkle in some of my favorite songs and key scenes to make me feel something <laughs> or react a certain way i'm there 
John, I'm not saying it didn't work. <laughs> I know. I'm just giving it you. It was hard. done so much that it became distracting. Yeah, I can from see my that. perspective. What kind of music are you talking about that you said was throwback music? 60s stuff, right? 60s and 70s, I feel. And all very, very on the nose. How did you feel about Moulin Rouge when it came out? Did you see it when it came out? Did that bother you? Did you feel like it was just kind of base level trying to play with your emotions with the type of music that it selected? Where they sing Phil Collins songs and stuff. Yeah, I did see it when it came out. And I actually rewatched it not too long ago. I feel like it was because it was a musical and because they were adapting these songs. It wasn't soundtrack. It was much like a lot of the jukebox musicals like Mamma Mia and Across the Universe. It takes a little bit more work to say, I'm going to take these and I'm going to make it the narrative, not just I'm going to make it something that's going on while action is happening to punch up what we're doing, whether it succeeds or fails. I like it well enough, but I also tend to think that Baz Luhrmann is pretty good at what he's doing. Didn't bother me nearly as much. And I admit, I really like Across the Universe among all those movies. And I think that's, I've seen it a bunch of times just because I think it's so well put together. I didn't get through it. (laughs) I didn't care for it, but I thought Moulin Rouge was genius. The mashups of all those songs and intermerging and all that, I thought that was genius. I've seen the movie a second time and it didn't hold up as well, but that first time I just was blown away by what I was seeing. I've never seen Across the Universe, so I can't tell you. I've listened to the soundtrack of it, and I've liked a lot of the covers. But yeah, Moulin Rouge, there were moments where I was like, ah, it's neat. And then there were other times where I did feel like it was, I was like, okay, this feels pandery. This song doesn't quite feel like it works or whatever. But overall, like, I agree, Baz is pretty awesome. But it was kind of cool. I feel like maybe that movie did so well because it had people on both sides who loved it and hated it. So we talked about it for a really long time. I like the fact that we're kind of closing out here by going through a little of our personal list that we provided. I wanted to ask John, some of the ones you picked out were not big radio. And in fact, none of these four were big radio hits. Like some of them I'm familiar with. This Joe Boxer's Just Got Lucky, when I was listening to the link that you provided for that, I totally know that song, but like I didn't know that I know it. (laughs) I don't know what it was, but something about your questions, knowing what we were going to talk about here, these were the songs that popped to mind because... The first three, especially, just got lucky, which happened to play over the closing credits of The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Talked about that earlier. And Message to My Girl by Split Ends and That Smiling Face by Camouflage. The second two, especially, were songs that I loved but barely heard once in a great while on the radio. We've been talking a lot about the power of hearing those songs you like at the radio and sitting there with a recorder ready to record them if they ever came on or whatever. Those were songs that, you know, I'd hear once every other year or something like that. And if you did and you were lucky that they would tell you who sang it and what the name of the song was, sometimes it'd be in the mix of four and you wouldn't know. So something about your questions, Mark, were sparking songs that specifically reminded me of sitting by the radio, hoping and praying that the song that you (laughs) heard once that you thought you liked, but you don't know what it's called or who it's by would come on and that you'd recognize it in time to hit record so that you could have it to keep it forever. That's what those were. Joe Boxers and Jethro Tull's Songs from the Wood, believe it or not, are kind of tied together for me. When I was about 12 years old, I, I don't, I'm the oldest in my family, so I don't have that older sibling that taught me music. And my parents were more into classical, so they didn't really teach me anything. But my cousin, who was just older than me, Rick, he was that guy. And I remember walking into his bedroom one day, and as soon as I opened the door, and he had his own room and he had a big stereo and all this kind of stuff. The beginning, the acapella sort of singing of songs from the wood 
comes on just as I walk in the room. And I remember thinking, you can do that? Like you can have, you can be a rock group that also plays a flute and has these acapella, like, you know, skipping through a forest type sounds. You can, you're allowed to do that? I didn't know you could do anything like that. I retract my joke about Master of the Pan flute because <laughs> Jeff Rotel is pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That song and the video for Just Got Lucky by the Joe Boxers cemented in my mind an image of what England must feel like, look like, and be like. And for whatever reason, the sound of England, and now I know that you wouldn't normally connect Jethro Tull with Joe Boxers or the Smiths or New Order or Echo and the Bunnymen, but to me, the sound of that music is so specifically and uniquely from the UK and couldn't come from basically anywhere else that my ears became attuned to that sound. And I realized early on that I, if it was coming from the UK, I was probably going to like it because they just did something different over there. And so with Joe Boxers, it was the sense memory of the video. The clothes they were wearing, it reminds me of Come On Eileen by Dexie's Midnight Runners or maybe Madness, Our House, that kind of shabby clothes and the happy-go-lucky kind of personas mixed with this sound that could only come from the UK. It really speaks to me. I don't know why. So those are the four songs that came to mind based on your questioning. All right, well, you've given me a next possible music topic, which is the wonder of music from other lands and how that creates a place of fantasy in, in us and has that special appeal. Well, we should wrap up here. Thanks so much for joining us, John. This was fun. Thanks, guys, for asking me to do this. Thank you, John, for it. joining us. Yeah, thanks for being our guest. And thank you, listeners. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, and you'll be happy to know that John Lamoureux will be coming back for another discussion on Pretty Much Pop in December, I believe. And if you wanted to hear some more music-related podcasts right now, go check out his podcast, The Hustle. He's got lots of wonderful interviews and, in fact, connected me to a couple more press people that resulted in some of my recent interviews for this podcast, including my most recent with Dar Williams, one coming up with uh, John McCutcheon, and more are scheduled. So networking is very good. All right, and just to re-clarify what podcast you're actually listening to, I'm releasing this as a Nakedly Examined Music episode. You can get all of my Nakedly Examined Music interviews at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you want to support that effort, you can do so at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. This was a crossover post from my Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, which you can subscribe to directly at prettymuchpop.com or support at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. But really, I hope this shows you that you want to do something that supports both of these efforts. And you can do that, well, yes, separately through the Patreon pages, but also directly if you are on not the Partially Examined Life feed, but one of those other feeds through Apple Podcasts. There will be a button that says subscribe, right? They've introduced this new terminology so that if you're just getting notifications of new episodes for free, then you are merely following the podcast. But if you're subscribed, that means you actually pay something and paying to Apple Podcasts to support what they now call the Mark Lintertainment Network, because I needed a name, then that will get you ad-free access to three of my podcasts, those two and also Philosophy versus Improv, which on the feeds for those three shows, you're going to get bonus content, right? For, for this very pretty much pop episode, you could have heard us 
have a little after talk with our guest, John, where we give shorter takes on pop culture topics, find out more about our guests, think about what else in the world is interesting to talk about. And in all cases, your experience henceforth, if you are subscribed either through Patreon or through Apple will be ad free. You do not want to hear me read any more of this goddamn ad copy, do you? So I hope that is enticing to you, but whether or not you'd want to do that, thank you so, so much for listening. Feel free to reach out to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or mark at prettymuchpop.com to make your voice heard on what you want covered on these shows. I hope you're staying sane, being creative. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Mm-hmm.